This is Climate Positive, a show featuring candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. In a purely free market way, we are going to transition to 100% renewable energy because it is the cheapest and best way to provide power to people. The problem is time. We have to solve this faster. And if we're going to solve it faster than the free market can solve it, we need Congress to step up and provide the springboard to accelerate the transition. In this episode, I sat down with Tim Hayde, co-founder and COO of Scale Microgrid Solutions, a New Jersey-based company that designs, builds, finances, and operates distributed energy assets that are cheaper, cleaner, and more resilient. Tim talks about his journey since founding the company in 2015, the new and exciting customer demand that they're seeing for resilient energy solutions, the intersection of EV fleets and microgrids, the merits of cogeneration, his views on energy security, and the prospects for federal climate legislation, and much, much more. I'll admit I was intrigued by what Scale Microgrid Solutions was up to before we taped this pod, but I had no idea I was going to meet such a driven, passionate, and articulate young leader when we taped this. Tim is a righteous dude, for lack of a better word, and we had a very rich discussion. While my voice was croaking a bit from getting over a recent cold, I hope my enthusiasm still comes through in the interview you're about to hear. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions for over 30 years. To learn more about our climate positive journey, please visit HannonArmstrong.com. Tim, welcome to Climate Positive. Thank you guys so much for having me. Big fan. So uh, I want to get right into it. Scale Microgrids sells modular microgrid products to commercial and industrial customers. For the uninitiated, uh, could you break that down a bit further? Give us a bit of color on the business and what you guys are trying to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we started the company in 2015, the number one thing we were focused on was modularity. And basically what we saw happening in the market was the use case for distributed energy resources was growing exponentially. But one of the big barriers to actually deploying distributed energy was the customized nature of the average project certainly in the commercial and industrial space where we spend our time. And so as a result of the customized nature of the average project, soft costs on the average microgrid were really, really high, right? The amount of time and complexity that went into it, both from the engineering standpoint, but also from the customer standpoint, were a really big barrier. And so the initial sort of thought was, if we can just sort of build these things out of Legos, that's going to reduce soft costs and sort of make it a lot easier to deploy these, these projects for a whole you know, group of people that currently don't have access. And so you know, I think we've been fairly successful in doing that. But in the process of the last six years, what we've really figured out is that in order to be a successful microgrid company, uh, we had to get good at other things beyond technology. And so Right now, the way we're basically structured, we call ourselves a vertically integrated microgrid company, but that basically means that we took the technical side of it, the legal side of it, and the finance side of it and brought it all under one roof in the hopes that the synergies created by you know those people working closely together were going to help us streamline project development and get projects done faster. And you know that's very much a work in progress, but we're getting better at it every day. So let's talk about demand. Where are you seeing demand for microgrids and resiliency broadly? What's driving that? I imagine the last two years have been 
interesting, but uh, give us some color on demand. I think right now there's three big drivers in the market and, and a lot of different groups of folks that are getting interested in microgrids and distributed energy more generally. But the first driver and the thing we focus the most on as a company is resilience. And perhaps unsurprisingly, where we see the biggest demand for those types of projects are regions of the country that have experienced grid reliability problems over the last few years. So California is the fastest growing market for us right now. That's largely correlated with wildfire mitigation and public safety power shutoffs. And we can talk more about this, but um, all the things that utilities are forced to deal with right now that they haven't traditionally been forced to deal with, which is resulting in a lot of unplanned outages, which is a material threat to businesses across the state. We're also seeing a lot of demand in markets like Texas, right? They had the freeze in February of 2021 that took their grid very close to uh, the point of no return. Um, and so a lot of demand coming from that state as well. The Northeast market uh, has been a strong market for a long time when it comes to distributed energy. You know, one of the reasons we started this company, and I think one of the turning points for a lot of people in the Northeast was Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy in 2012. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, states like that, have been on the cutting edge of this type of stuff for a while, and that continues to be a strong market. And then increasingly, we're looking at a lot of island opportunities, right? So uh, Puerto Rico, uh, the Caribbean more generally, Hawaii, which has always been sort of the flag bearer for distributed energy. Those types of states are, are really hot markets for distributed energy right now. Then I think the second big driver of customer demand is ESG stuff. It's hard to sort of quantify this, but over the last few years, I think you've seen a real turning point amongst, you know, certainly publicly traded companies with respect to how they're thinking about sustainability and climate impact over a long time horizon. And so, you know, the sustainability benefits that come with microgrids and distributed energy deployment are really appealing to a big segment of corporate America right now. And then the final thing is energy economics, right? Uh, electricity prices are going up. More specifically, transmission and distribution charges are going up, right? And so one of the interesting things about, I think, energy economics right now is it's getting cheaper to produce kilowatt hours, but more expensive to deliver kilowatt hours um, from the point of generation to the point of end use consumption. And that basic structure is exactly the use case for the economic benefits of distributed energy. And so, look, I think at the end of the day, for most people in the United States, um, for most businesses in the United States, energy costs are still a relatively small percentage of total operating costs. So, you know, I think resilience is the number one driver, sustainability is the number two driver, and then there's a little bit of a lag, and then there's economics. But, you know, the economics of these projects have to work, and they do in a lot of areas of the country. Let's talk about customers. I was fascinated by your partnership that you announced earlier this year with the electric bus maker Proterra and the Santa Clara Valley Transportation Authority to charge 34 electric buses with a solar-powered microgrid. You know, really, I think showcasing seems like that's a perfect match for the future of transportation, microgrids, and, and EV fleets. Could you talk about what that project means? EV fleets are maybe the best use case for distributed energy I've ever seen in my career. And if you look at sort of the basic trend that's evolving, fleets are gonna be electrified, right? Like the train has left the station, 
Um, I think most of the major fleets in the United States, or at least the major commercial fleets, have already announced that they're transitioning to electric vehicles. And the timeline for you know companies is different. Some have a five-year trajectory, some have a 10, some are you know 15 to 20, but it's definitely happening. And I think the driver of that is the automakers, right? Like there are fleet vehicles, electric fleet vehicles available right now that deliver a better value proposition to logistics companies, delivery companies, people who manage fleets than, you know, comparable internal combustion engine vehicles. So people are going to buy these vehicles. The next problem becomes how do you charge them? And I think that's really where people are starting to run into a lot of problems right now with electric infrastructure. One, there's just like a system-wide problem of these fleets require a lot of power. And so, you know, in places where you traditionally haven't had a ton of load, you're now adding, you know, 10 megawatts, 15 megawatts, 20 megawatts of needed capacity. It's really, really difficult for utilities to accommodate that, really almost impossible for them to accommodate that on a quick basis, right? And so time is actually a big factor in getting these things done where people are gonna acquire these vehicles, they need to have the power to charge them, they can't get the power from the utility, you gotta make your own power, right? But then I think the resilience point is really important here as well, right? Which is, if you're going to transition to electric vehicles, especially if you're a mission critical fleet, you can't stop operating or serving your customers when there's a power outage. And so inherent in you know coming up with an infrastructure solution for the electric vehicle space, you have to think about resilience so that when there's an outage, you can continue to you know, serve your customers, do mission critical business, that type of stuff. And then when you look at the economics of these deals, especially the role that stationary storage can play in complement with utility and some vehicle to grid stuff and a lot of nuanced things that are happening in the space right now, the economic value proposition, the end use customer is really, really attractive in a lot of cases. So I think you put you know, all those things together and you know, microgrids are kind of a no-brainer to support EV fleets. And I think that's the conclusion that a lot of independent fleet operators are coming to. And then the challenge becomes, how do you build? If you think about this from the microgrid standpoint, there aren't a lot of microgrid companies that understand the automotive world very well. And, you know, conversely, there aren't a lot of automotive companies that understand the microgrid world very well. And I think that was sort of the basis of our partnership with Proterra, right? As we came to the table and said, look, at a high level, this makes a lot of sense, but we don't know a lot about electric buses and you don't know a lot about microgrids. So let's just like put everything on the table and see if we can figure out a solution that works for everyone. And I think the VTA project is our first attempt at doing that. I'm really excited about it. And I think once it's built, you know, sometime next year, it's going to be a real reference project and a real signal to the market that this is a really good way to do this. But, you know, we're continuing to evolve design and we're continuing to work together and, and figure out, you know, how our technologies can complement each other. And in general, right, I think that spirit of collaboration is something that kind of permeates clean tech right now, right? And something that I actually really like where, you know, we're all trying to solve the same problems at the end of the day. And, you know, we got to figure out ways to work together in order to do that. And, and certainly in the case of California with the VTA, you know, there's a helpful policy tailwind as well, right? Isn't California requiring 100% EV for public transit authorities by 2040? So that's all, I always think of the analog to the renewable portfolio standards as we see more of these states and localities have those standards. That's that's huge, right, for driving this market. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the state of California has been huge in sort of making this happen. And in addition to some state legislation that's helping from sort of a, a top down um, standpoint, the California Energy Commission gave us a big grant to build this project. And without that, I'm not sure we would have been able to get to sort of balance all shareholder interests. And so the state of California is a really great partner in this. And I think ultimately, you know, their belief that this has to happen for climate driven reasons is sort of permeating a lot of these decisions. And so, you know, look, there's no secret that the energy market is essentially a public private partnership, right? And I think one of the things that we've found is that when you find state governments specifically that are willing to be open minded and, and work with you to try to accomplish, you know, innovative things, that's the best case scenario. And so that's definitely one of the things we think about when we're talking about, you know, what new territories are we going to expand into? Where are we going to do business? You know, one of the key criteria is what does that state look like? What kind of programs do they have in place? Is the administration open-minded to sort of new things? And um, that's a big differentiator. And I think it's something that a lot of entrepreneurs in our space have to think about a lot. So we're going to come back to policy later, but I'm just staying on customers. I saw that you and your co-founder uh, Ryan were in Arizona a couple months ago for the GreenBiz conference, which is, you know, the big gathering of all the corporate sustainability types. And, you know, all of these corporations have net zero goals. That's certainly been helpful for the clean energy market. What were those conversations like this year with respect to the microgrid solution? Anything surprise you? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we're trying to figure out internally is how does ESG work, right? One of the reasons that I think that specific Green Biz event was great, right, is it kind of brought the clean tech community and the ESG community together to have a lot of these conversations. Look, I think from a long-term standpoint, the conceptual idea of ESG is not only great, but it's necessary, right? We have to price these types of externalities into our market dynamics or else we're not gonna succeed in mitigating climate impacts, right? And so the problem right now is that in the short term, it's kind of a mess, right? Everyone is kind of thinking about ESG differently. There's not a lot of consistency. A lot of the metrics that companies are using for thinking through decisions that they're gonna make are kind of disjointed, to be perfectly honest with you. And look, I think what we learned and what we've seen, not just at the GreenVis conference, but in a lot of conversations with leaders throughout industry, is that like the intent is there, right? Like people want to figure out how to do this and figure out how to do this the right way. I think, you know, one of the things that's challenging about it is to some extent, when you're developing an ESG policy, you want to measure twice and cut once, right? You want to make sure that you've thought through, like, how are we going to do this? You know, does it make sense? And, you know, the downside of that is like, we also need to take action now, right? And I think that's the trade-off a lot of ESG folks are dealing with right now is, yeah, we could spend the next decade thinking through how to set up like the perfect ESG strategy for our company. It's too late then. Yeah. yeah. But if you don't do anything in that 10 years, then like we're in trouble, right? And so that's really where I think the ESG community is at right now is, you know, how do we walk and chew gum at the same time, right? How do we figure out how to build a long-term strategy that makes a lot of sense, but also do a lot of work over the next decade to sort of make sure that we don't fall too far behind, that we can't catch up. 
And, you know, I don't think there's a silver bullet answer to that, but I do think like the right people are at the table. We're having the right types of conversations and the intent is there. And so, you know, we'll figure it out. And just one last customer markets question. We talked about transportation. How about other vertical markets? I noticed you, you're doing some work with fruit companies, right? So anybody with a large facility, warehouse, could you talk about that? And is that market, certainly California, do you see that growth in that particular vertical? Yeah. I mean, I think if you think about it from like the highest level, we're really focused on mission critical companies. And I think the difference is like we have a slightly different definition of mission critical than I think the industry has traditionally had. And so basically, if you think about, you know, mission critical being any business wherein a major disruption to energy is going to have a material impact on that business, those are the types of customers that, that we like to talk to and like to focus on and where we think our value proposition resonates the most. And so, yeah, like agriculture and food logistics has become a huge market for us and, and something we're spending a lot of time on. And in some ways, the pandemic really taught us that logistics were maybe more important than we you know, gave it credit for. Um, when we went from everyone sort of going to the grocery store to everyone ordering their food and their groceries to be delivered, right, and all that type of stuff, we were able to make it work. But, you know, the logistical requirements of doing that behind the scenes were absolutely crazy. And so I think what that's caused is a lot of food logistics providers to rethink their general approach and their general strategy to how they're servicing their customers. And also, you know, has sort of spurred this idea that we can't just build a business that's optimized for blue sky conditions. We have to think about different challenges that are going to come up and, and sort of play three-dimensional chess and figure out how we're going to deal with those. And I think that's really created a lot of interest in power resiliency in the food logistics space. So we're doing a lot of work with, you know, warehouses and cold storage facilities up and down the supply chain, right? We're talking to a lot of grocery stores on the retail side. We're doing some of those projects. We're talking to distribution warehouses. We're talking to cold storage warehouses. Um, each one of those have like unique technical requirements. But I think the general motivation is the same, which is we are a mission critical entity, right? Yeah. Like we can't have operational disruptions to the grid result in food shortages to the public. And so we have to figure out how to deal with that. And I think that's something that's kind of been embedded in a lot of executives' minds in, the, in that industry. And that's kind of where we come in. I want to ask a technology question. I mean, it's probably fair to say the bulk of your microgrid systems are solar and batteries. But I, you know, I think you guys probably do CHP cogeneration as well. What are the advantages of, I mean, we're a big fan of cogen as well. What are the advantages that people don't realize and just understanding, you know, there's different thermal needs for resiliency. I always think of hospitals, you know, they need to have the steam then sterilize their materials in an outage situation. And, and cogen, um, I think is misunderstood. We're, there's a lot of electrification we need to do and certainly renewables, but they can work together. I mean, could you talk about the importance of cogen? And it's also one of the top climate solutions, according to Project Drawdown. I'd love for you to talk about that as a solution and the economic and decarb benefits that I don't think is well, well understood. Yeah. So look, cogeneration is an amazing technology. And I think in order to tell its story, you have to sort of start at the high level, right? Which is 
Unfortunately, I think a lot of climate discussions in this country and globally have kind of become too black and white, where it's either like you're net zero or you're not. And those people don't like to talk to each other a lot, right? But the reality of the situation is that if we're going to do what we need to do to mitigate climate change, we have to think in a more nuanced way. And so the reality is, is that the way our electricity grid works right now, there is a massive opportunity to quickly accelerate the transition to renewable energy. And, you know, over the next two decades, I could see a range of scenarios, but we could get to, you know, 70, 80, maybe even 90% of the kilowatt hours we consume coming from renewable energy. But there's still going to be a role for fossil assets to play in that mix. Because right now, the technical properties of dispatchable generation, which is typically the role that fossil gas provides in the market, is really important to load balancing and capacity issues and a lot of other things that, I don't know, not a lot of people think about except for energy engineers, but it matters quite a bit. And so the question is, if we're going to be in a scenario where you know 80% of our power comes from renewables, and 10 to 20% of our power comes from fossil gas or you know, fossil assets, it's really important to think about using that fossil gas as efficiently as possible. Absolutely. And cogen behind the meter is, is one of the most efficient uses for Yeah, it, right? I mean, it's undebatable, right? Like behind the meter cogeneration is the most efficient way to use natural gas in the electricity system today. Because look, like the average gas plant, the average gas peaker plant, has an efficiency somewhere between 35 and 50%, which means for every unit of energy you put in, you get between you know 35 and 50% of that out as a kilowatt hour, and the rest goes to atmosphere as waste heat. Behind the meter, Cogen offers the opportunity to recycle that waste heat and use it to offset gas that would have otherwise been used to produce heat or cooling or whatever the case might be. And then you also minimize transmission and distribution losses. And so when you look on it on a net basis, the argument for Cogen is unless somebody has a plan to get us to, you know, 100% renewable energy, you know, within the next 10, 15 years, which, again, outside of sort of some academic theories, I don't think anyone's talking about that as a really practical plan, then we're going to use some gas. And if we're going to use some gas, it therefore makes sense to use it in the most efficient way possible. And that's essentially the business case for cogeneration. You know, from a resiliency perspective, it's got a really strong value proposition. From a sustainability perspective, it has a really strong value proposition. And from an economic standpoint, it has a really strong value proposition. And the big barrier in the market right now is really more sort of in this political spectrum where because it's natural gas or because, you know, it's using some sort of fossil based asset to produce electricity and heat, it's bad and people don't really want to think about it. But again, I think like we, probably should be having a more nuanced conversation about how we're going to get where we need to go. And look, I think you can make the argument that there's definitely a role for Cogen to play in that, which is why we like the technology. Very well said. Thanks for articulating that. Um, You're an Air Force veteran. Let's talk about energy security. Let's talk about national security. Let's talk about climate security. I saw the new ads that you participated in with Clean Energy for America and Climate Power and the letter that you published in the New York Times. Now, the floor is yours. I mean, I think we should, what did you say? We should listen to veterans when it comes to energy security. So 
please make the case. Yeah, look, this is nothing new. Right, we've had this conversation before. Yeah, right, right? like for decades and decades and decades, we've been talking about the national security implications of you know, having an energy system that's overly reliant on oil and gas specifically. And there are some fundamental structural problems that cause national security concerns for us. So for people that are just getting into this, right, basically the history on this is everyone was worried about this until, I don't know, somewhere around 2005. And in fact, when I was at the Air Force Academy in the early 2000s, this was something that was like talked about all the time. And at that time, one of the reasons that Republicans were interested in renewable energy was because of the national security implications and the need to have redundancy against a very volatile oil and gas market that was overwhelmingly controlled by people that didn't have, let's just say, aligned values with the United States of America. Then we figured out how to frack. And fracking, you know, 2005 to sort of 2015 timeframe alleviated a lot of those concerns because the U.S. went from being a player in the oil and gas market to being the player in the oil and gas market. And we basically figured out how to extract all the oil and gas we could ever need. And the national security concerns kind of phased away and we stopped talking about them. But we shouldn't have stopped having that conversation. And so, you know, the reality of the situation is what we're seeing in Ukraine right now today is a direct result of a global economy that's overly reliant on oil and gas. And the reason Vladimir Putin is able to do what he's doing in Ukraine and commit the atrocities that he's committing in Ukraine is largely because of funding he's received from the oil and gas industry. That has to stop. I think the difference when we look at it today and when we looked at it 15 or 20 years ago is today we have the technical solutions to wean ourselves off oil and gas fairly quickly. Whereas if you were making this argument in 2002, right, that was always the argument against it, which is like, well, what are we going to do? And the answer now is we need to transition to renewable energy. And so, look, I think that's a conversation that we need to be having outside of the climate sector which is one reason we need to transition to renewable energy is because of climate change. But another reason we need to transition to renewable energy is because it's a fundamentally more secure way to build an energy system, because even though there are a lot of concerns that we should talk about, right? We're talking about the difference between CapEx and OpEx, right? Once you build solar panels or once you build wind turbines- No fuel cost. Yeah, yep. no one can turn that off, right? No one can restrict supply and make my cost of driving to work go up 2x because you know they decided they wanted to invade a sovereign democracy, right? And so there's that fundamental difference between renewables and traditional oil and gas plants that, that makes a huge difference in this equation. You know, with that said though, right, transitioning to renewable energy in and of itself does not mean that we are not going to be at the whim of people that don't have aligned values with us. So another thing we need to be thinking about is if we are going to make this transition, how do we do it in a way that ensures that we are not subject to the whims of dictators, right? And so like right now, lots of the solar panels we're deploying in the United States come from China. We have to have a conversation about what are we going to do about that? Do we want to pay more for solar today so that we can build domestic manufacturing plants and make sure we have the supply chains? to ensure that if China wants to go into Taiwan, 
right? We don't have to continue to buy solar panels from them or continue to buy wind turbines from them or whatever the case might be, or do we not? And I, I think that discussion needs to happen. And I would argue that like, yeah, that should be baked into our national security policy, which is we have to diversify our supply chains and make sure we're not subject to the whims of people who are subject to do crazy things. But that discussion isn't happening. And I think that's where a lot of veterans are coming from on this front to say, look, it's very, very clear that the current system continually puts our national security at risk. There's a way to change that. And we need to be having conversations about ways to change that, that make the problem better um, and not just assume that it's going to make the problem better. And, you know, I, I think a lot of veterans are fired up about this, right? Because we went to wars that were at least partially driven about oil. <laughs> by the need to secure oil and gas supply chains. And we lost friends to those wars and to sort of see our nation not acknowledge that and realize that and transition past that is exceptionally frustrating. And look, I think we want people to listen to us, right? Because it's a real, real thing that affects a lot of people, both in the United States and globally, and not enough attention is paid to it. It was very moving what you said, and it's got me fired up too, because, you know, whatever modicum of, of patriotism we all share, I mean, this this is a kind of universal thing. Like, this is going to happen again. We don't like these price shocks. We don't want it to be dependent on Putin or or the other oil petrostate dictators. So, like, come on, America, let's let's charge up. Let's build it here. I mean, these strikes me these are universal things. But in our time, you know, nothing is as obvious or patriotic as that would seem. Point is true on batteries as well, right? We can catch up there with some smart policy. But go ahead. No, for sure. Look, I I, I think. You know, if you start off with the premise that like a clean energy economy is fundamentally safer, that in and of itself is a very nuanced conversation. But like everyone who knows a lot about this comes to that conclusion, right? Like a clean energy economy is a fundamentally safer economy from a national security standpoint. That doesn't mean like there aren't real concerns. And so like you think about batteries and you think about the mineral supply chains associated with batteries, like I don't really like anywhere that cobalt comes from. There's huge humanitarian concerns with that. We can fix those concerns. We can address those concerns. We can innovate our way past those concerns, but that's not going to happen on accident, right? And it's very unlikely that the free market is going to price those concerns into the cost of goods. And that's why we have a government, right? And that's why back to what I was saying earlier, like energy has always been a public-private partnership. It's if not the one of the most heavily regulated industries in the country. And that's for a reason, right? Because energy security is national security. And you have to think about those things in concert. And so, you know, again, right, the free market is not going to pay an extra dollar a kilowatt for a fair trade cobalt product. That's not really how that works. The government has to step in and say, like, you have to do that. And when you think about this over the long term, there's no doubt in my mind that those types of, of policy decisions are 100% necessary in order to get us where we need to go from a national security standpoint. But look, it's really, really frustrating. And I think one of the things that everyone in, in clean tech and everyone in the environmental movement more broadly is struggling with right now is in order to make that happen, we need to get more than 50% of the country to believe that's the case. And you know, everyone's trying to, to sort of make this case from their own angle. 
I think, you know, our hope is veterans. And one of the reasons the Veterans Energy Project came together to sort of use this crisis in Ukraine to try to explain this to people is maybe talking about this from a national security standpoint instead of a climate standpoint resonates with a few folks who uh, weren't on board with this uh, prior. But look, I think when you look at it, like from a utilitarian perspective across the board, there's no doubt that we should be building a clean energy economy. And there's no doubt that we should be doing it a lot faster than we're currently doing it. And it's just, you know, the barrier to that is getting the majority of people in this country on board with the plan. That's the challenge. Well, let's stay one more policy question. The climate reconciliation package, very close potentially to a finish line. Uh, The latest is maybe May, fingers crossed, right? May, June window. You've been engaged on this, like many of us in the community, making your voice heard. Tell us why this particular climate package is, is so important. I think we know the clean energy incentives, which are the bulk of the climate package. Talk about that and the need for that to really further accelerate this market to have any shot at our Paris goals. I guess to start out with, right, I'll share like a little bit of a hot take I have, right, which is I came out of this whole process the last year, year and a half that we've been working on the energy provisions that were originally called, you know, the energy provisions of the Build Back Better plan and are now going to be called something else really, really optimistic, even though that in December, it looked like we failed. And I think the reason for my optimism was our community, right? The clean tech, environmental activists, you know, finance, all the folks that are trying to make this energy transition happen, did a remarkable job of navigating a very complex policy landscape to get to a deal, right? And just for those who aren't familiar with this, The reason that Build Back Better did not pass had nothing to do with the energy provisions. We were there and I think continue to be there on the energy provisions. It happened because of this weird reconciliation packaging process in the Senate and the fact that they tried to lump a lot of different programs into a single bill. And our good friend from West Virginia had some issues with the non-energy provisions of that. But like on the energy side of it specifically, which is what we can control, It was a remarkable effort by a lot of folks. And for anyone who's been in this industry for a long time, right? Like a decade ago, there's no way we could have navigated that, right? Like it was a fragmented industry. No one really, you know, communicated internally. There wasn't a lot of organization. We didn't understand how to work the Hill, myself included, right? I remember talking to uh, Bob Johnson, your buddy at Hannon Armstrong and asking him a lot of questions about (laughs) this. Like, I don't know, a decade ago. And we were just like disorganized, right? And so like the transition we've seen over the past decade has been really, really remarkable. And the clean tech industry is a real player in Washington, D.C. right now. And we understand how to navigate things and we understand how to get things done. And I think the effort was remarkable. And I'm still very hopeful that within the next month or two, we're going to see the light at the end of the tunnel and this is going to get passed by the Senate. Now, with that said, right, the reason that Congress needs to pass this $555 billion energy package has to do with time. And the reality of the situation is, you know, from a business perspective, this energy transition is going to happen, right? It's inevitable at this point. It's just a question of pace. Yeah, there's nothing that can stop it. And so, like, in a purely free market way... We are going to transition to 100% renewable energy because it is the cheapest and best way to provide power to people. 
The problem is time. And so, you know, if there wasn't a clock on climate and if there wasn't a clock on some of these national security issues that we just talked about, you know, my view would be like, all right, like just let the free market take its time and do what it needs to do. And if we get there in 2050, great. And if we get there in 2075, like, okay. But that's not the situation we're in. We're in a situation where the clock is ticking and every, you know, time the IPCC comes out with a report, um, everyone who reads it has a minor panic attack and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. <laughs> um, and so we have to solve this faster. And if we're going to solve it faster than the free market can solve it, we need Congress to step up and provide the springboard to accelerate the transition. And so in that $555 billion package, no one got everything they wanted. There was a yeah. lot of compromise. There was a lot of conversation. There are things that didn't go in there that I thought should have been in there. There are things that are in there that I don't think should be in there. But as a general rule, it is an amazing package that can serve as a springboard for the clean technology industry to really accelerate the energy transition. And if you want to do this whole thing in 20 years instead of 50 years, you need congressional action to sort of spur that and send the right messages to the market. And so there's a lot in there that's going to do just that. And that's the reason it's so important to get this passed. Excellent. Let's turn to our hot seat lightning round part of the episode. So the first is a fill in the blank. The most important advice I have followed is? Don't die. Um, so <laughs> let me expand on that. One, one of my Please, mentors, yes. Yeah, one of my mentors is a guy named Jigger Shaw who has been incredibly generous to me over the years. And when I first met him, he, I, I'll never forget this. He told me the first rule of energy project development is don't die. And I think what he meant by that is that if you're going to pursue a career in this sector, you have to be really disciplined about taking risk, right? Um, there are opportunities that come up all the time where you can kind of bet the farm on something, but a lot of times things don't work out be, for reasons that are outside of your control. And so like, if you're coming into this industry, you have to understand that this isn't like a SaaS business where you can work hard for six months and then cash out, right? That's not right. how it works. This is like fundamentally a hardware business and software plays a very, very important role. But at the end of the day, this is a hardware business and things take time. And so, you know, staying in the game and, and sort of keeping going served me really well. And that's, you know, the first piece of advice I give to new people who are coming into the industry today. That's great. That reminds me of what our CEO, Jeff Heckle says, you can't make a difference if you're not in business. <laughs> We're investing in stuff that the last decades and it's complicated and it's important and expertise matters and you got to diversify your bets there so you can make a difference, right? I think that's exactly right, right? And it's one of the reasons Hannon Armstrong is so impressive as a company, right? And I think like Jeff is really a role model for a lot of folks who do what we do, right? Is I, I think if memory serves, like the first renewable energy project he tried to do is in like 80, like 1987 or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like he didn't, accomplish, cool. he didn't accomplish what he wanted in the 80s and he didn't accomplish exactly what he wanted in the 90s and he didn't accomplish what he wanted in the 2000s. I haven't talked to him recently, but I bet you if you ask him today, like he's still not accomplishing everything he wants to accomplish, but like he keeps going, right? And he keeps showing up and he keeps making yep. progress. And then when you look back on that and you look back on his, you know, 30 plus year career doing this, it's like, oh, you changed the game. And I think that's a lot more representative of what a career in this industry looks like than, you know, a lot of the stories you read in like Fast Company about people who had an idea and were billionaires like six months later, right? That's not really how this works. 
Um, and, and so it really is a yeah. long game. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And you got to go into it with that mentality. Okay. How about the word or phrase I most overuse is? I have like a lot of verbal tics, so I'm probably a bad person to ask about this, but bring it back to industry, right? I think probably the phrase I use the most is that, that I want to sort of change is load balancing. And I think like as a broader point here, right, one of the things that has been very difficult for me in building a business and learning how to communicate with customers is I came at this, you know, problem set originally from a very technical place. And when you actually get into like the nuts and bolts of how electricity is made, it's magic, right? Like it's still, it's, it's right. insane, but it's, it's super duper duper complicated. And I think, you know, one of the things I still find myself doing way too much is using industry lingo that like makes a lot of sense to me. When I'm talking to people and the net result of that conversation is they have no idea what I'm talking about. Right. And so that's something yeah. that I, I've been trying to work on over the last few years in terms of like, how do you tell this story in a way that resonates with people who aren't experts in electricity or power systems management or things like that? I don't think I'm there yet, but that, you know, that's a good example of something I say too much. What habits from serving in the Air Force have stuck with you? There's a lot. There's no doubt in my mind that I wouldn't be able to do what I do today without the experience I had in the military. Am I, I'm allowed to curse on this podcast, yes? Yes. All right, good. So yes. I think the number one thing I learned, right, is the world is a fucked up place. And so, you know, look, like we have a lot of problems in the United States, and I don't want to dismiss or discount any of those problems. They're real. They matter to people. We should all be having more conversations about how we can make this a better country for everyone. However, on balance, this country of ours is an amazing place. And I think when you go to places like Afghanistan or Somalia or Iraq, and you see what life is like for people um, who we don't talk about all the time or we don't really like see all that much, you start to realize that like we as Americans are in a unique position to make a difference in the world. And when I left the military, the number one thing that I sort of told myself is no matter what, right, I'm going to try to find a way to make the world a better place, which I know has become like a cliche thing, but really matters to me. And I think really matters to a lot of people that, that work at our company and a lot of people that work in our industry. The world cannot solve climate change without America. Yeah. I guess that's a little controversial to say, but it's something I like wholeheartedly believe. And we have to be leaders on this issue. In a lot of ways, we have a moral responsibility to take a leadership role because we have the opportunity to do it, right? We have the best research institutions. We have the best companies. We have the best economy for entrepreneurship that exists in the world. And if we don't do this, no one else is going to figure it out. And so I think, you know, ultimately, that's kind of what my military experience taught me is that each one of us as Americans who you know, by luck of the birth lottery got, you know, we're able to be born here and we're able to have a lot of the opportunities we've had. With that comes a responsibility to try to figure out how to maximize that opportunity. And that's what I tried to do in the military. And that's, I hope, what's carrying over into my professional life today. I'm reminded of, uh, it's, I don't want to cheapen how beautiful, like Spider-Man, you know, yeah, <laughs> with, no, no, with no. great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, that's... Uh, 
one of the most insightful things ever to come out of a comic book, right? But it's, <laughs> it's 100% true. And I think one of the things that is frustrating about the current level of discourse in this country is that, you know, people aren't respecting that power that we inherited and they're not using it to the maximum extent to do good things. And, and we should be doing that. And the energy transition is a perfect opportunity for us to, to step up and get this thing done. Awesome. So final question, tradition, finish this sentence. To me, climate positive means? Success. I'm a really results-oriented guy. And I think one of the things that we need to stop doing is arguing amongst ourselves about what the right way to do this is, right? Like the reality of the situation is this is extremely complicated and there's not one right way to do anything. And we just need to go. And so, look, at the end of the day, the thing I'm most fearful of is we're going to spend the next 15 years having debates about how we should build the perfect energy system. And then we're going to wake up one day and it's going to be too late, right? And we're not going to be able to leave our kids a better world than we inherited, which ultimately I think is like the definition of a generation success or failure. And so, you know, you think back on you know, why do we have such reverence for the greatest generation, right? The generation that it's because they went and they did something that was nearly impossible. And in the face of all of it, like they pushed through and they preserved the world for democracy. That's what I think our generation's legacy can be when it comes to climate, right? We can be the generation that solves this problem, but we're not on that track right now. And no matter how hard we're trying, it's not hard enough. And so this is a measurable thing, right? Like average global temperatures are either going to go up by more than whatever metric you use, one and a half degrees or two degrees, or they're not. And for me, that's what we need to be focused on. And we need to do everything we can possibly do in order to make sure that the worst case scenario doesn't happen. Awesome. Tim, thank you for being on Climate Positive. It was really fun to chat with you today. No, thank you guys so much for having me. And thank you guys for what you're doing. I think this is an awesome series and I'm a big fan. So it was a pleasure to be with you all. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple or Spotify, which really helps us get more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at HannonArmstrong.com. I'm Gil Jenkins, and this is Climate Positive.